A father filling in as mother while his wife was in the hospital attempted his best for his 10-year-old and his 15-year-old. And after a few days, he was fishing for a compliment. And he asked them, he said, I'm doing pretty good, huh? And the son says, Dad, you serve a fine cold cereal in the morning. And the daughter said, the 10-year-old said, you're better than nothing. In the Lord's church, God wants his followers to be better than nothing. But even more so, he wants us to be useful tools. The lesson is called Growing the Lord's Church. And the first point is teaching. For faithful Christians, we know Christ's blood covers our sins. We have been declared righteous. How do we know that? Well, likely you were taught. I've sinned. I need to make, have a remedy for that sin because that sin is not sending me to the right place. Christ is the remedy. And Christ has given us salvation if we follow his truth. And we learn this truth overall because of Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, 19 through 21. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Over and over, I've heard from people who have said, who have attended various churches in their life, and they've said state things like, I was never taught to pray. I was never shown examples. I was not taught to study. I was never taught the purpose of baptism or even the truth as they later came to understand the truth. Even preaching in classes lacked depth and were so watered down. Now I heard, I've heard this, not just in my recent history, but I heard it even when I was a kid talking to people who were sharing their backgrounds with me. It was very foreign to how I grew up. Did God leave us without teachers? Or without students of his word who can teach? That was not his intent. He wants people to know his truth and to learn his truth. Ephesians 4, 11 through 14. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Not to be better than nothing, but to be a tool for him. For the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro 
by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Not everything you hear or read might ha has the mark of what God wants us to know or understand. Because people who have schemes that don't follow God's way are crafty. They're good at tricking. So we need to listen to those people who have put their time into the word and who can teach so that we ourselves can do the same thing. It all comes from God, does it not? We need to teach God's word correctly. This is important in growing his church. Not just an outreach, but personally. Who here does not need to continue to grow? The second point is leadership. Parents, I've heard many times that there is no teaching manual, <laughs> and I think I've said it myself in being a parent. It's tough. And we learn as we go in that second child, that third child, or in my case, that fifth child, can be quite different than the ones that came before. And you're like, why can't they be all so easy like this one or that one? And there's so many differences. But the idea that there is no teaching manual is actually not completely true. In biblical studies, you'll run into classes in college that are called Biblical Doctrine of the Family. You look at scripture and you go, what does the Bible say about family? And do you know there's a lot the Bible says about family? Some of the things, as Lee has pointed out in the past, when you look at Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were messed up <laughs> in a lot of ways. Can we look at them and say, wow, if I just don't do it that way, I might have a better relationship with my kids? But if I do it this way, in the way that we want people to see, is that we need to put God first. There's the other example. Biblical doctrine of the family is, is just that. What does the Bible say about relationships? particularly in the family. We have examples of really good, and we have examples of really bad. And regardless, we have the examples of those who either choose to follow God or not. What's the difference? Well, there's a big difference. And then within that study, we consider some modern sciences, psychology, how to talk to people. Now, not to talk to people. Do not provoke your children to wrath, fathers. What does that mean? Well, it's a good question. And of course, common sense. Common sense might be helpful. Parental leadership was actually very, was something that Paul recognized 
in Timothy's family. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. But as for you, Paul is talking to Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise to salvation through faith in Christ. How important are those parental figures in our life in instructing us in the ways of God, teaching us the scriptures? It's not mandated that that only happens in Bible class on Sundays or Wednesdays. That should be happening all along in the family. Leadership. Godly parents are essential. Not only in the health and well-being, because, hey, what do we do when we teach kids about their teeth? Well, we show them how to brush our teeth. We, we teach them how to brush their teeth. We take them to the dentist to explain certain things. We're involved. But it doesn't just deal with the health and well-being of the physical body. It should deal with the spiritual mind and thought of growing up. Or as Easton pointed out this morning, how well he has been challenged in understanding what's the difference between King Saul and King David. And that big answer that came out that I just enjoyed and I was smiling. And I know who's helping you, Easton, is the heart. He had a heart for God. Are we teaching our kids to have a heart for God? Did David learn that accidentally? Paul attested to the reality of this. That's part of a subject on biblical doctrine of the family. And then in leadership, we have church leadership. From a father, a spiritual leader in the household, we are taught to seek elders. Sinless men, Oh my, no, there would be no elders. Abusers? Oh, definitely not. Fathers who have and are learning to manage themselves, to teach their family, to teach others who are reaching their kids. And you fathers and mothers know in through experience, that takes time. With such responsibility, it makes sense elders are not recent converts, doesn't it? As the slide up here points out, as a person is planting, the idea of being a recent convert is that you are newly planted. I could be 50 years old with a lot of experience in my life, but if I'm newly planted in Christ, 
I have some catching up to do on certain aspects of a spiritual life. I might have to revisit some of my children's lives and say, hey, I did not lead you in the right direction here. Let me help you now if I can. I remember talking to a dad. He actually lived here in Flagler. Nice guy. He's been gone for quite a few years, not in this congregation. And he was saying, I spent a lot of my life watching TV and doing all this. And I never really got involved in my kid's life. So now he is a missionary type. He has been convicted how he should live, and he's out doing it as he understands it. But then he looks back and he goes, all my kids are doing is watching TV and they're not involved. And he's looking back and he's going, I wasn't the leader, the spiritual leader they needed in my life. So he's trying to rectify it as best he can. He has the right attitude. And that's a good thing because no parent is perfect. It makes sense that elders are not recent converts. That's like children being parents. When I worked at Children's Home of Lubbock, you know how many kids, little girls that I helped or worked around that were 13 years old and already having kids? It doesn't click. In common sense, 25-year-olds are having a hard enough time with their first kid in managing the household, getting that job, working on their education, and trying to do everything at once while their parents are aging out and other things. So you wouldn't want somebody in your life leading you who wasn't learning and growing themselves. You see, in God's word, it's not allowed to have an elder who is newly planted. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 is just one aspect of this teaching. 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-control, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping the children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation from the devil. And of course, there's more detail in other places, but the idea is that leaders lift up people for their success in their walk with Christ. They lift them up. They help them on their journey. The last point in growing the Lord's church is nurturing. 
Loving the Lord's church, and we all know what church means in this context, right? It's not the building, right? It's the people, the called out, those who are called out and who have joined the community, and in this case, community in Christ Jesus. Loving the Lord's people is a work of love. It takes patience. Everyone has a role. We teach New and young Christians, don't eat the bad food that you might be accustomed to before becoming a Christian. And of course, you understand that's an analogy that Paul is bringing up, that is Peter is bringing up. Don't eat the bad food of malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. It'll give you spiritually crooked teeth. It'll make you have to go see the heart doctor. In God, uh, infant Christians, regardless of our chronological age, need to eat healthy. Spiritual milk and grow and grow. First Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. So put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. The idea that as we're saved, now let's live a life that God has called us to since we are in salvation. Let's grow spiritually. Let's live a life of holiness. Let's be sanctified. Let's help others do what they need to do in life to be better Christians, not to be better saved, because we're saved already, but to be people of God's truth who are living it out. So as we grow, are we to remain an infant in knowledge and understanding? Are we to say, I have enough? I'm glad for the milk that I get. Christians are expected to grow. Hebrews chapter 5. Lee, I think you were listening to my thoughts in class this morning, even before we met today. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. Do you want a child to teach you God's word? Yeah, they can teach like Easton did. What a great example that was. But do you want the child to teach you the teachings of God that you need to live by? Or someone who has made it their life's mission? My dad was not a preacher, but he made it his life's mission to be greater in understanding the word and living it out than he was as an engineer. 
engineer was second place to him. I saw him dig into the word more than I saw him dig into the facts that he already knew from engineering. Engineering wasn't who he was. I love that list you showed us in the book. One of the greatest influences of my life was my dad. Spiritual influences. It made sense to me. Christians are expected to grow. By being in Christ, we commit ourselves to living in righteousness. We've been declared righteous, and God wants to nurture you. Romans chapter 6, 12 and 13. God wants to build you up. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. You have been brought from death to life. Now put your money where your mouth is and get growing to be the better than nothing or an important tool. You are better than nothing. You have been a great impact in my life because I have things I can learn from you too. But we must grow as God's useful one. There may be concerns in your life, issues that you're challenged with. I don't know. A father filling in as mother while his wife was in the hospital attempted his best for his 10-year-old and his 15-year-old and after a few days, he was fishing for a compliment, and he asked them, he said, I'm doing pretty good, huh? And the son says, Dad, you serve a fine cold cereal in the morning. And the daughter said, the 10-year-old said, you're better than nothing. In the Lord's church, God wants his followers to be better than nothing. But even more so, he wants us to be useful Tools. The lesson is called Growing the Lord's Church, and the first point is teaching. For faithful Christians, we know Christ's blood covers our sins. We have been declared righteous. How do we know that? Well, likely you were taught. I've sinned. I need to make, have a remedy for that sin because that sin is not sending me to the right place. Christ is the remedy, and Christ has given us salvation if we follow his truth. And we learn this truth overall because of Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, 19 through 21. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, 
Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Over and over, I've heard from people who have said, who have attended various churches in their life, and they've said state things like, I was never taught to pray. I was never shown examples. I was not taught to study. I was never taught the purpose of baptism or even the truth as they later came to understand the truth. Even preaching in classes lacked depth and were so watered down. Now I heard, I've heard this, not just in my recent history, but I heard it even when I was a kid talking to people who were sharing their backgrounds with me. It was very foreign to how I grew up. Did God leave us without teachers? Or without students of his word who can teach? That was not his intent. He wants people to know his truth and to learn his truth. Ephesians 4, 11 through 14. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Not to be better than nothing, but to be a tool for him. For the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Not everything you hear or read might ha has the mark of what God wants us to know or understand. Because people who have schemes that don't follow God's way are crafty. They're good at tricking. So we need to listen to those people who have put their time into the word and who can teach so that we ourselves can do the same thing. It all comes from God, does it not? We need to teach God's word correctly. This is important in growing his church. Not just an outreach, but personally. Who here does not need to continue to grow? The second point is leadership. Parents, I've heard many times that there is no teaching manual, <laughs> and I think I've said it myself in being a parent. It's tough, and we learn as we go, and that second child, that third child, or in my case, that fifth child, can be quite different than the ones that came before. And you're like, why can't they be all so easy like this one? 
or that one. And there's so many differences. But the idea that there is no teaching manual is actually not completely true. In biblical studies, you'll run into classes in college that are called Biblical Doctrine of the Family. You look at scripture and you go, what does the Bible say about family? And do you know there's a lot the Bible says about family? Some of the things, as Lee has pointed out in the past, when you look at Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were messed up <laughs> in a lot of ways. Can we look at them and say, wow, if I just don't do it that way, I might have a better relationship with my kids. But if I do it this way, and the way that we want people to see is that we need to put God first. There's the other example. Biblical doctrine of the family is, is just that. What does the Bible say about relationships? particularly in the family. We have examples of really good, and we have examples of really bad. And regardless, we have the examples of those who either choose to follow God or not. What's the difference? Well, there's a big difference. And then within that study, we consider some modern sciences, psychology, how to talk to people. Now, not to talk to people. Do not provoke your children to wrath, fathers. What does that mean? Well, it's a good question. And of course, common sense. Common sense might be helpful. Parental leadership was actually very, was something that Paul recognized in Timothy's family. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verses 14 and 15. But as for you, Paul is talking to Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise to salvation through faith in Christ. How important are those parental figures in our life in instructing us in the ways of God? Teaching us the scriptures. It's not mandated that that only happens in Bible class on Sundays or Wednesdays. That should be happening all along in the family. Leadership. Godly parents are essential. Not only in the health and well-being, because, hey, what do we do when we teach kids about their teeth? Well, we show them how to brush our teeth. We, we teach them how to brush their teeth. We take them to the dentist to explain certain things. We're involved. But it doesn't just deal with the health and well-being of the physical body. It should deal with the spiritual mind and thought of growing up. Or as Easton pointed out this morning, how well he has been 
challenged in understanding what's the difference between King Saul and King David. And that big answer that came out that I just enjoyed and I was smiling. And I know who's helping you, Easton, is the heart. He had a heart for God. Are we teaching our kids to have a heart for God? Did David learn that accidentally? Paul attested to the reality of this. That's part of a subject on biblical doctrine of the family. And then in leadership, we have church leadership. From a father, a spiritual leader in the household, we are taught to seek elders. Sinless men, oh my no, there would be no elders. Abusers, oh definitely not. Fathers who have and are learning to manage themselves to teach their family, to teach others who are reaching their kids. And you fathers and mothers know in, through experience that that takes time. With such responsibility, it makes sense elders are not recent converts, doesn't it? As the slide up here points out, as a person is planting. The idea of being a recent convert is that you are newly planted. I could be 50 years old with a lot of experience in my life, but if I'm newly planted in Christ, I have some catching up to do on certain aspects of a spiritual life. I might have to revisit some of my children's lives and say, hey, I did not lead you in the right direction here. Let me help you now if I can. I remember talking to a dad. He actually lived here in Flagler. Nice guy. He's been gone for quite a few years, not in this congregation. And he was saying, I spent a lot of my life watching TV and doing all this. And I never really got involved in my kid's life. So now he is a missionary type. He has been convicted how he should live and he's out doing it as he understands it but then he looks back and he goes all my kids are doing is watching tv and they're not involved and he's looking back and he's going i wasn't the leader the spiritual leader they needed in my life So he's trying to rectify it as best he can. He has the right attitude. And that's a good thing because no parent is perfect. It makes sense that elders are not recent converts. That's like children being parents. When I worked at Children's Home of Lubbock, you know how many kids, little girls that I helped or worked around that were 13 years old and already having kids it doesn't click in common sense 
25-year-olds are having a hard enough time with their first kid in managing the household, getting that job, working on their education, and trying to do everything at once while their parents are aging out and other things. So you wouldn't want somebody in your life leading you who wasn't learning and growing themselves. You see, in God's word, it's not allowed to have an elder who is newly planted. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 is just one aspect of this teaching. 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping the children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation from the devil. And of course, there's more detail in other places, but the idea is that leaders lift up people for their success in their walk with Christ. They lift them up. They help them on their journey. The last point in growing the Lord's church is nurturing. Loving the Lord's church, and we all know what church means in this context, right? It's not the building, right? It's the people, the called out. Those who are called out and who have joined the community, and in this case, community in Christ Jesus. Loving the Lord's people is a work of love. It takes patience. Everyone has a role. We teach new and young Christians, don't eat the bad food that you might be accustomed to before becoming a Christian. And of course, you understand that's an analogy that Paul is bringing up, that is Peter is bringing up. Don't eat the bad food of malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. It'll give you spiritually crooked teeth. It'll make you have to go see the heart doctor. In God, uh, infant Christians, regardless of our chronological age, need to eat healthy, spiritual milk and growth. And grow. First Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. So put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. The idea that as we're saved, now let's live a life that God has called us to since we are in salvation. Let's grow spiritually. 
Let's live a life of holiness. Let's be sanctified. Let's help others do what they need to do in life to be better Christians, not to be better saved, because we're saved already, but to be people of God's truth who are living it out. So as we grow, are we to remain an infant in knowledge and understanding? Are we to say, I have enough. I'm glad for the milk that I get. Christians are expected to grow. Hebrews chapter 5. Lee, I think you were listening to my thoughts in class this morning, even before we met today. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 through 13. 14, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. Do you want a child to teach you God's word? Yeah, they can teach like Easton did. What a great example that was. But do you want the child to teach you the teachings of God that you need to live by? Or someone who has made it their life's mission? My dad was not a preacher but he made it his life's mission to be greater in understanding the word and living it out than he was as an engineer. Engineer was second place to him. I saw him dig into the word more than I saw him dig into the facts that he already knew from engineering. Engineering wasn't who he was. I love that list you showed us in the book. One of the greatest influences of my life was my dad. Spiritual influences. It made sense to me. Christians are expected to grow. By being in Christ, we commit ourselves to living in righteousness. We've been declared righteous, and God wants to nurture you. Romans chapter 6, 12 and 13. God wants to build you up. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. You have been brought from death to life. Now put your money where your mouth is and get growing to be the better than nothing or an important tool. You are better than nothing. You have been a great impact in my life. Because I have things I can learn from you, too.
but we must grow as God's useful There may be concerns in your life, issues that you're challenged with. I don't know. try to do Romans chapter 2, the whole chapter this evening. Uh, so let's start off with this little story. Young students in the Sunday Bible class were asked by their Bible teacher, what was the best thing that you thought about the class this year? And the preacher's son, little tyke he was, thought about it and he had an opinion and he says, I like the singing. And so he wrote down on a piece of paper what he liked. And though he knew what he liked, he wasn't a very good speller. He said, the thing I like about Sunday school is the sinning. (laughs) Though singing was his intent, the reality is that sin is an important concept to understand. Um, So we're in Romans chapter 2, 1 through 29. And the aim of the lesson this evening is uh, God's judgment, as it has been from chapter 1. But we're going to start considering the Jewish claims and God's counterclaims. And that's kind of how the chapter ends, although this overall discussion continues on into the next chapter as well. So, would somebody please read real loudly chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. You, therefore, have no excuse. You pass judgment on someone else. For at wherever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. All who sin under the law will be judged by the law. 
For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when the Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciousness also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even deaf. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Okay, what version are you using? Okay. All right. So let's go back to chapter 2, verse 1. We're going to look at Paul's uh, principles of God's judgment and uh, break them down by verse. Uh, and the first one comes out of chapter 2, verse 1. Somebody read that again, please. Just first verse. Therefore, you are inexcusable, man, wherever you are will judge. All right. So one of God's concepts through Paul is that um, personal guilt. Uh, so when we look at chapter one, we sure got a big concept of the whole Gentile concept, didn't we? Boy, those Gentiles. But now we're getting into the idea of, hey, it's not just nations, but the individual. Um, and so whether you don't have specific revelation as Paul talks about looking at nature, natural revelation, um, does being without the word of God as we have it make you less responsible for your sin? No. no. It does not. In fact, we're, it, it, he gets into more detail. But what were you going to say, Jerry? Well, where it says your conscience is your uh, witness or whatever, it's the same thing we're studying in the men's class, actually. Well, good, yeah. So uh, we have an awareness. And uh, so as a group, uh, the Gentiles don't have an excuse. As individuals, you know, we don't either. And uh, sometimes as an individual, we like to do what? Look what they did. Easier to see their fault. Easier to, or it's, in some cases, make it up, you know? <laughs> ah! Well, that doesn't help the situation. In fact, it just shows how, how poor you are at being a follower of God. So... Uh, I notice this when I preach, and some of you may have noticed this maybe in classrooms or as you've done preaching. If you've really hit on a subject, and uh, I try not to purposefully preach to one person in the congregation, but sometimes I'll bring up something in general or specifically whatever text I'm using, and it might hit somebody in particular and they might have a, yeah, I've done it. I accept it and move on. They're not like, you're bringing 
the light to the darkness because I haven't told anybody. No, they're like, yeah, I did it. I'm moving on. I'm a, an example of someone who repents. Fine. Uh, and others are, are maybe quite offended. Or what I see sometimes is, uh, or I have seen is, I bring up something not necessarily focused on one individual, but then I see somebody turning towards an individual as if we know about them. You see what I'm saying? We know about them. So here's Paul saying, well, good enough for you. You know about them. So what have they done? They're sinning. They're sinning. But the reality is you don't really have a right to do that because who are you? You judging them, well, it's on the other foot too, buddy. Uh, so John chapter 8, uh, you remember the story of the woman caught in adultery? Uh, that's kind of similar, I think. Uh, in what way might that be similar, whoever remembers that story? So the man wasn't in the picture, and if you go to the old law, both have to be. Yeah, that was one thing, uh, which might be the heart of the other problem, uh, one of the problems. Anything else? Ooh, buddy. Yeah, and. Nobody still knows what he wrote in the sand. No. There's a lot of hypothesis on that, but um, but it's not worthy, in my opinion, it's not worthy to over-concern ourselves with it. Um, but basically, they had a heart problem, didn't they? And the heart was, we caught this person. Now, by law, should she have been stoned? But by law, they weren't following it, were they? And so here's Jesus. Is he saying it's okay to do adultery and that we should have let everybody off the hook? I don't think so. But they're, they're, they're defacing or defaming the law just to prove a point and put Jesus on the spot. Yeah, and if they caught her in the act, he had to be there. Which is my guess. Yeah, he did. Yeah, and so, um, and according to the law, they both needed it. So here's Jesus going, where's your heart? Which one of you haven't done something as egregious? You may not have done adultery, but as Paul brings up later, uh, there's other things that are just as equal and it's called any kind of sin that makes you on the same plane. Who are you to judge? Now, does that mean we can't judge? Is that what he's saying, that we can't discern? No, but if you have the heart of someone who just looks at others and judges them without recognizing your need for God, then that's, I think that's more of the problem than the idea that you recognize somebody's a sinner because they're not in Christ. Well, you've just acknowledged that they are lost well you got to you got to but your heart's different isn't it 
the, sec- uh, um, the second principle of God's judgment comes out of verse 2. Who would like to read that? We are sure that he, we are sure that the judgment of God is according to the truth against them which, come, which commit such things. All right. According to the truth, what truth might they be t- referring to? As it, as it connects with chapter one. Is it the truth or truth in general? And if it's truth in general, what generality might he be talking about? Oh, what about God? Truth according to the law. So we're probably still dealing with Gentiles, so they're not under the law, that kind of law. He is. Uh, um, Maybe I did not say myself very clearly. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things, my version says. What things were just talked about in chapter one that they were practicing in general and what group of people was it referring to? Yeah, and it was a big deal about the Gentiles. So, So they didn't have a specific truth so that it's probably dealing with the general truth. And uh, according to what I read, I didn't look it up, but there's no article in front of truth here. In the, there might be in your English, but not in the Greek, which would make it a generalized truth and not the specific the truth, meaning the law or the gospels. So either way, It's probably dealing with the natural revelation, those things that God created. Um, We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on them. And what does the judgment God going to declare? That they're what? Ignorant, therefore okay? Nope. They're lost. Yeah, yeah, they're lost. They're in a bad way. And, And this is inescapable. Chapter 2, verse 3. Who would like to read that? And do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Who? Who? Now, that could probably uh, nip at anybody's... um, if you have a conscience, <laughs> that might prick it. If you don't, you might be the one that just looks at people in the pews next to you going, those sinners. But, uh, so maybe it's the Jew in general. You know, they had a, some of them had a pretty good way of looking at the Gentiles, maybe at this juncture in history and saying, you know, we hate them. We hate the Romans. You know, they're lost. They're not one of us. God's chosen people. I don't know. Um, could be a Christian Jew, but do you think all J- Jewish Christians were hard-hearted that way? Do you think some of them got along real well with their Gentile brothers and vice versa? You know, people are people. 
But then you got the hardline Jewish Christian. Uh, and we got texts in Galatians and other places. They were pretty... It's the same principle, isn't it? You know, why do I need to go uh, to somebody who believes that they're just fine? I'm going to go to the ones that need a doctor because they know they're sick. Uh, it's a very same principle. And uh, even within the Jewish faith by itself, because their Christianity hadn't even started. So they were already having the mindset that we're better. So if some of these people were converted and maybe continued the same heart you know there's there's a conflict there might be some major conflict but the idea is hey are you out of the woods oh person who judges another no you're not out of the woods either you're not any better than them in the reality of you're lost just like they are, even if you have the law of Moses that you obey, unless you kept it perfectly and you were sinless. Paul gets into that. Do we know anybody who's kept it perfectly? Gee, anybody else? No, not at all. So, so judgment is coming. Romans 14, 10 through 12. Somebody read that. Romans 14. Boy, I need to pick up the pace. Romans 14, 10 through 12. Somebody please read that. Shu, why do you judge your brother? Or again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall all right and if that's not a uh, humbling thing but and as you get into romans you'll see he brings he brings this maybe general concept between the general jew and the basic gentile and specifies it more so now you see that he says you're dealing with your brother and in Christ, whether we're Jew or Gentile, aren't we supposed to be now one nation? And in fact, if memory serves, those outside of Christ in comparison to those in Christ are now the new Gentiles. And we become, according to Hebrews, if my memory serves, the new Israel. Because it's, it's a spiritual Israel, not a fleshly Israel. Um, a little tidbit there. Um, chapter 2, verse 4. Somebody read that. When you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. All right. What's going on there? Or repent to be redeemed. Yes. Uh, somebody said this that I thought was pretty good. 
if anyone goes to hell, it's in spite of God's goodness. He wants all people saved, right? But the reality is, if you want to go to hell, you can go. So, all that goodness he has, all that patience he has, is not to say you're off scot-free, do anything you want to. It's the idea that I am waiting for you to repent. This could be the Jew, this could be the Gentile, it could be anybody. Uh, yes. And so, yeah, the, so does, so in one respect, God really doesn't send you to hell. It's really where you want to go. You can't get to heaven without being declared righteous through Jesus. That's written in Second Peter 3, 9. Read that, please. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us word, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's what he wants, isn't it? But the reality is, he's not going to force it on you. But it's the opportunities you have to repent come from his goodness. He's given everybody opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. So as we deal with those people who aren't mature, we, we be patient. Uh, chapter 2, verse 5. Somebody read that. What's going to happen to unforgiven sinners? Do you want to store up treasures in heaven or do you want to store up everything that comes for his wrath? Have you ever thought about wrath being something that you're preparing for? I'm going to build up the wrath, my treasures of wrath. Yes. Yeah, let's. And uh, so you get into some of other Paul's other concepts. The idea of removing the debt of sin uh, actually is, is like what they did with old debt accounts. If you paid it off, they'd either put a cross through it or erase it on their things. And now your debt is paid. And the only way we can be redeemed or have that debt X out is through Christ. Otherwise, we are storing up our debt account, and the, and the interest is God's wrath. So don't march that way. But the reality is, hey, uh, you who judge others and don't look at yourself needing God and that you're on and on and on and on. If you're unrepentant, um, not where you want to be so this all comes this all brings out God's judgment which is righteous I was listening to a thing on YouTube oh I am going slow I was looking at a thing on YouTube and it was this judge and he was giving a, he gave a 15 minute I didn't listen to the whole thing because I got like uh, bored 
But anyway, he was laying out all the good things this, this young girl did. You've got people around you that are standing up for you. Uh, yes, you've had a hard life. Yes, your mom died when, and when you were 12. Your dad was put in prison. Your brother accidentally died in a car wreck. You got put into a home. A lot of bad things happened, but looking out in the courtroom, you got people all around you that are really concerned for you and they love you and that shows your character. But the reality is she did something that was so egregious. She got, she was probably 19 or 20, if that. She got life. She got life in prison. And he was saying all these good things about her, which I found interesting. But the reality is, um, God's righteousness and judgment will be revealed on that day of wrath. You can be the nicest person, but if that guilt isn't declared, uh, taken by Jesus Christ, the judge has no other ability than to follow, in God's case, his righteous justice. And is that his fault? It's our fault for not getting the judge, the lawyer we need to take care of our penalty. So none of this is God's fault if, if you go the wrong way. None of it. Uh, he is righteous. He is, judgment is divine. Verses five and six, somebody reread five and read into six. But after the hardness, uh, impotent heart, treasured up unto thyself, wrath against the day of wrath and re revelation of the righteousness, judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds? Wow. Yeah. And then he clarifies the deeds. So, so when James speaks of works, what kind of works is he generally talking about? James is um, works of, um, you know, we need to, if we don't have works, then what good is our faith? So they're not works of merit, but faith works of faith. Yeah, that's James. Paul, when he talks about works, in some cases, he deals with the merit side and says, that's not how we get to heaven. But we need works of faith, which show that we are seeking to live an obedient life, relying on God's grace through Jesus, not on our ability to be perfect in earning works. So when he gets into this concept here in verse six and following, he seems to be just sharing two different broader concepts of works. You're either doing works that show that you're following God or you're doing works that show you're not following God. Um, so verses seven through 10. So we're not dealing with grace yet in the context. Somebody read seven through 10. Ooh, this is a big one. Eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and 
do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. For there is tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. But glory and honor and peace every man to those good, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Sounds like a lot of works of merit going on here, but but if you look at Paul's overall context, he's not saying you're earning anything, is he? But he's saying, which side have you chosen to live? Have you chosen to live for God in the way he wants you to do? Or have you chosen to live for self? And the reality is, um, even if we chosen to live for God and our works show that, does that save us? No, but it does show who we're counting on, right? Because as we look at the bigger picture, uh, if we're doing appropriate works for God, we're, we're, we're counting on his, Christ's blessings in our life. And as Hebrews talks about, in that context, chapter nine, that even goes back to those under the law in the past, at least that specific context is. It's their, their salvation is still based on Christ too, because they could never keep the law. Not one of them. I was, uh, I was talking, I think it was Jerry, and I said, did you know, well, we were talking. I said, when, remember when King David committed that sin with Bathsheba, then he committed that murder. I don't care if he was king or not, what should have happened to him? Should have been put to death. And then Nathan came to him. He had the repentant heart. And then what did God say through Nathan? Your sin is, it's still based on, according to Hebrews, Christ. It wasn't based on his perfection. And we're going to get into that when Paul distinguishes between Abraham and David in the next few chapters. So, so the rewards are eternal life, glory, honor, and peace. The regrets is wrath and fury, tribulation and distress. Uh, is it about his anger? No, I don't think his anger has anything to do with it. It's about his justice. If you broke the law and you have no... Remorse, or, well, even more than that. You, uh, and if you don't have Christ taking that wrath for you, um, the penalty is going to be the same for everybody. Uh, and, and God's judgment is impartial. What's impartial mean? Non judgmental. Um, he does it. Or Jew or Gentile or whoever. Chapter 2, verse 11. Somebody read that. For there is no respect as a person with God. Mm. That, that says a lot right there, doesn't it? Um, um, without, and, and this is what we get into later, but without Christ, you're all lost. Without his taking your punishment because sin must be, wrath must be brought out on the sin. 
That is the purpose of what Christ did on the cross. <clears throat> and uh, so we'll finish here at verse 16, but uh, somebody read um, verses 12 through 15. And this kind of reemphasizes the idea that Paul is dealing with those who are under the law of Moses, as well as those who are not under the law of Moses, but who by nature, as God designed things, still have a law against them. So everybody is under a law. There is, there is no Gentile ever who is not under, God considers who is not under a law that would uh, excuse them from sin. Uh, verses 15 through 12 through 15, please. For as many as sinned without law will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these also not having the law are law to themselves. Who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else existing them. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. So I don't pretend to understand every ins and outs of that, how God will do that, but the reality is um, Who's, who's, who's the biggest consideration of that whole judgment concept? Specifically, Christ. Um, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. And he's classifying those under the law of Moses as well as those not under the law of Moses. And... Uh, so Jesus has a big role, doesn't he? God has a big role. And in their in their in how they deal that out, it's gonna be it's gonna be appropriate. And the reality is without faith in faith and obedient faith in God, um, uh, that that is that is a significance in our life to have an obedient faith uh, in God. And um, um, and for the Christian, um, definitely. But again, are are we going to be sinless even in our walk? No. But how many times is our walk supposed to be? As John says, he uses the concept of what in the in the light. Yeah. So which is another way of saying, as Paul would say, maybe obedience of faith. Um, so if we're in Christ, from the Christian's point of view, as we know it now, uh, as it should be, uh, we, we, we absolutely understand that without him, we're lost. Don't think the Jews really understood that. I don't know. You, you're welcome to argue with me on that, at least in the history. But I don't think they believed that animal sacrifices were 
Yeah. Yeah, how can animals really take away my sin? God must be involved there somehow to understand that. Well, God sent those sacrifices up to the beginning, but he wanted their obedience. Yeah. He wanted them to do it from the heart. You know, when yeah. he cleared the temple, when Jesus went in and cleared the temple, it was because they had made it into a robber's den and yeah. a and that was not what that was for. So, you know, the sacrifices know when it says later that, that those didn't do any good, but he wanted their obedience. And they they are to have an obedient faith as well. Yeah. Yeah. The, the sacrifices, uh, they were tied for Christ and preparing them? Yes. At, well, as we now see on the other side of the cross that they may not have seen, and if you look into Acts, you'll see that the, a lot of priests started coming to Christ. And uh, I think they got it. And it's like, we don't need all this anymore. Christ's blood. And they got it. Um, at least uh, from, from Axe's point of view, as it says very small. So it's a, um, you know, they were dealing in the blood constantly, you know, especially on the Day of Atonement and stuff. And then, and then, oh, the true sacrifice. And then you got the, the rock splitting, the dead rising, the temple curtain split into two. Everything about the old law is coming clear in the prophecies, especially for those who are, uh, who are looking to understand. I, I think it's beautiful. But the reality is sin separates all from God. Law or no law, law of Moses or no specific law of Moses, all have a law. And no one is sinless. So is this more of a, as you go on and read Romans, is this more of a declaration because the Gentiles don't understand that or more for the Jews, particularly Jewish Christians to go? There's uh, unity under Christ is important. And if I got an inflated ego and not really realize how similar I am to others, uh, that's cause, that'll cause strain. Uh, we're going we're gonna to stop there um, and continue on, verse, verse 17 and following, and I just with may my, extend that. With my home Bible studies, being on the same subject to this and then 